and welcome to the BPL podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, and I'm here today with a very special guest, Johnny DiLoretto. Johnny, thanks for coming on the podcast. Jeff, thanks for having me. This is fun. Yeah, so Johnny was here just last week uh, doing a program about the movies of 1939 and their significance. Um, so I really appreciate you coming out and making a special trip to do the podcast. It was so much fun. It was great. Uh, the presentation, we had a great audience, and they were also uh, eager to participate, and everybody had smart things to say, and, you know, we, we had a, a great night. Awesome. Yeah, glad to hear it. So... Johnny DiLoretto is a longtime Columbus media personality who has amused audiences since 1998 when he began writing irreverent movie reviews for the other paper. Shortly after that, he made a distinct impression on local TV audiences when he became ABC6 and Fox 28's nighttime entertainment reporter. In 2006, Johnny turned viewers onto the many amazing people and places of central Ohio on the morning broadcast Good Day Columbus in his distinctively off-the-cuff style. Over the years, Johnny has taken great pride in co-hosting and co-producing cinema classics for WCBE. So, Johnny, you've, you've had sort of a, a winding road through the entertainment and media business. Yeah. Can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah. Well, it, 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 it all goes back to movies. I, I wouldn't have my career if it weren't for my love of film. So um, I stumbled upon a film studies program at... Ohio State when I was there. I was an English major. They didn't have a movie department when I was there, uh, like a cinema production department. You know, my dream was always to make movies, but that just didn't pan out. Mm -hmm. And they had this film studies program, and I was just able to, like, explore this whole world. You know, and back then it wasn't uh, quite as, like, I think it's a unified program now. But back then you had to go to the women's studies department, uh, and the French department, and the history of art department, and the Germany department, and the German department, and Russian, you know, to like pull together this, uh, this education about world cinema. And just writing about movies, I fell in love with it. I graduated in 1997, and then I saw an ad in the other paper, the now defunct other paper, and they were looking for a freelance uh, movie critic, and I sent a couple of reviews in, and um, that's how I, I kind of landed in that, that position. Now, I, I just told you I, I wanted to be a director. I wanted to be an actor. I mm. wanted to be the good-looking Woody Allen is what <laughs> I wanted to be. And uh, at that time, I was obsessed with Howard Stern and how he had kind of, like, carved out this weird niche. Like, he was talking about stuff that was, he, you know, had no um, filter mm. and... And I loved his irreverence, and I loved how Howard Stern, e even in his interviews with celebrities, no matter how they responded to him, you learned more about them in their response than you would during the course of some, like, Jay Leno interview or some, you know what I mean? Oh, These yeah. canned, mm -hmm. practiced interviews. So the way they responded to him was so real, and I loved that. And so when I started writing these movie reviews, I wrote them in a sort of in-your-face kind of look-at-me way. They were legitimate film reviews because I was a serious student. Sure, but sure. I was also had this urge to make people laugh and to provoke people. And so that's really it. I just used that forum as a stage. You know, I used movie criticism as a stage to express my my humor and, you know, my irreverent uh, approach to 
communication. And one thing led to another. I got on television. That was that. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> that's the dream, yeah. Um, how would you say, is it fair to say that, you know, it seems like you're a little bit ahead, ahead of the curve in terms of like, like now, nowadays, they're, you know, so, so easy to start a blog or a yeah. podcast or whatever and get noticed in the same way that you got noticed. Is that, do you think that's fair to say or? Yeah. I mean, I, it's been fascinating to watch this whole, you know, everybody says, when you say you're a film critic, everybody's like, wow, how does, how does that happen? And, and usually it doesn't happen. I mean, you know, back then and in the late nineties, um, you just had to kind of be at the right place at the right time with the right skill set. Those jobs don't usually open up. Mm-hmm. For the most part, they're not paid positions. It's like, hey, you know, we need somebody to write this. Can you do it? Um, now, in the case of Channel 6, there was no such position. There was no entertainment reporter position, and nobody was doing that at the time. So mm-hmm. they were really sort of thinking a little bit ahead of the game. How do we differentiate ourselves but, um, uh, between us and, say, Channel 4, Channel 10. And that was one of the ways they did that. They kind of cut me loose and let me do my thing. And it did make kind of an, an impact, you know. Um, one of the things I always say I'm most proud of uh, after having left after about 12 years there is that I kept the stack of hate mail that I got. <laughs> and I did. I had a nice, healthy stack of hate mail. But what I was proud of was that after the first couple of years, that just dried up. And then it was oh, wow. all it was all like fan mail or people writing me, asking me questions or whatever. And I think, you know, I came out of the gate and it was a weird thing for people to see on local television, some smart aleck, you know, guys pushing your buttons and it was uh people didn't respond to it right out off the bat. But I think after a couple of years, they, they, they understood that I, I was not a monster. I'm just, uh, I was just being silly, you know? Sure. Uh, but yeah, over the years, you, you, you know, that was at the beginning of the, you know, people started blogging and that was a way to give yourself an opportunity that no one else was going to give you. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, there's a cacophony of voices out there, uh, talking about movies. It's hard to find, I think, good writing about, about movies but it, it is out there you just kind of gotta dig around for it sure yeah absolutely yeah yeah let's, let's talk a little bit about your your library program yeah um last week so um you were here talking about the movies of 1939 yeah and um so can you talk a little bit about why that year in particular is, is so influential sure well let me turn the tables for a second uh, you're a young man how old are you 29 uh movie fan would you uh, consider casually, okay. more music and television. But have, have you ever heard of 1939 being a significant year? Is that something that was in your like, you know, in your you, you purview? Know, I, can, I can't say the year itself. Although when I read the description and some of the movies mentioned, I obviously you know recognize some of the movies. Yeah. I'm just curious with someone your age, you know, because um, growing up, I was all I always, especially once I started reading about film and started to, you know, become like a cinephile. Like, and you start poking around and educating yourself. 1939 was, cons- is, you know, a monumental year. And uh, just so many great films had come out that year. 
multiple films by multiple directors. Like John Ford had four or five movies come out that year. I mean, imagine that. Imagine Spielberg suddenly cranking out five movies in one year. It's, it's unheard of. It is. So part of what was at work there is this perfect storm of the end of the Depression, um, cinema kind of finally coming into its own as uh, out of the transition from silent to talking films. So that happened in the late 20s, but it took a while for, I mean, silent film, or talk, when they, with the advent of sound, it really kind of ground production to a halt because those filmmakers were very mobile at the time. They were like, you know, you had all kinds of really dramatic expressionist shots and um, it was just a different kind of palette that they had. And then microphones got involved and, and, and suddenly they couldn't move as much. So it took them a while to sort of figure that out. Then you have the Great Depression and the studio system and audiences are flocking to Hollywood for escape. It was an affordable um, form of entertainment for everybody. Uh, Highbrow, lowbrow, you know, there are literary adaptations, there are foreign, uh, you know, immigrant directors making smart movies, and you had crowd pleasers, and you had B-movies, and you had little westerns and musicals. and So really it was this art form for the masses, and no one had quite captured the attention of so many people um, to that marvelous effect. So by the time you get to 1939, you have just this confluence of cultural events and, and the artistry of, the, of Hollywood coming into its own studio system, just working like gangbusters, and all these extraordinary artists cranking out you know, these amazing movies. There's no real reason for it. It's just weird. It's just weird. And I always, I thought it was weird, like, too, that we think about 1939, the two movies that pop instantly into your head are Gone with the Wind and uh, The Wizard of Oz. And during the, um, the program the other, last week, we talked about that. And it, it's just, how weird is it that they're directed by the same guy? Victor Fleming. Now, there was some weird stuff going on. They're both mm-hmm. considered producers' films because they were, um, uh, I think it was Daryl Zanuck that wanted to like create these, these huge prestige uh, adaptations of these books. So he was really working on it. And, and there were directorial fights and people were fired and brought on. And at the end of the day, Victor Fleming got credit for directing both of those films, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then, I, this didn't even occur to me. I was putting together the presentation, and I thought, well, let's end with a couple clips from both Gone with the Wind and, um, and The Wizard of Oz. And so we watched the clip from the, uh, Gone with the Wind first, and Rhett Clark Gable leaves Vivian Lee, you know, that whole, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He walks out, and then she's destroyed, you know, and she, like, stumbles to the bottom of the stairs, and then she has this moment of, she's crying, but then she, like, gathers this strength, and she's, like, you know, she's thinking about home, home, I have home, I have my home, Tara, Mm -hmm. and that's all I need, and this is what I will rebuild my life from, you know, 
and it was this powerful, beautiful image. And then we showed the clip from uh, The Wizard of Oz. Slightly different scene. Dorothy is in bed, surrounded by her aunt and uncle, and then the three farmhands, you know, and they're all like looking at her. So it's in some ways it's visually the opposite. So she's a young woman surrounded by family. We had just seen Scarlett O'Hara abandoned and left alone. But at the end of The Wizard of Oz, Dorothy says, oh my God, I've come to this realization that home, home is the greatest place there is and I'm never going to leave you guys again. Like I had this wonderful experience and it was terrifying and I learned a lot, but I'm happy to be home. And it was, I was like, oh my God, how, it almost looked like I planned that right. out. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, you know, it's, I can't take credit for it, but it was a really, it's just a sort of wonderful discovery. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. I can't say I've ever made that connection. And I'm sure to the people at the program, you look like some yeah, sort I of look genius. like a genius. <laughs> <laughs> nah. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. It's, um, it's interesting, like all the, uh, cause you know, you were initially curious about like, you know, me as a younger guy or whatever, like my familiarity with 1939 yeah. and those movies. Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't know if you reflect on this all, like in your talk, the different points of entry over the years for like those films. Um, like I'm thinking of, I think one of the first times I ever watched wizard of Oz was the whole dark side of the moon. Oh, like third <laughs> yeah. lion's roar lining up yeah, with that. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> um, uh, which was honestly like, I think, I mean, obviously even that was like before my time, yeah. the discovery of that, but, um, or you have like adaptations like the whiz and stuff mm-hmm, like that. And, mm-hmm. Um, just how enduring, yeah, I was a kid, obviously, when I first saw The Wizard of Oz, when it used to only be shown once a year. So it was kind of a special event, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and I, I do very distinctly remember as a kid being struck by the color in the movie uh, because it was different, and it was, it was like glowing. The movie glowed in a way that color films, um, in, in, when I was a kid, did not, like, you know... I think we all have every everybody's cinema as a child looks like the world to them, mm-hmm. like how the world is supposed to work or look. And there was just something so otherworldly beautiful about The Wizard of Oz. And then I got older and I stopped paying attention to it and I didn't care. And yeah, 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 it's great. The Wizard of Oz is great. And then I had a kid and I started watching The Wizard of Oz with him and I was blown away by it as an adult. I... I was like, oh, my God, this is... He made me watch it like a million times. We watched this movie over and over again. <laughs> that and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which was another one of my favorite movies. And I just thought, man, this kid is going to ruin these movies for me. He's going to ruin them out right, of sheer right. repetition. <laughs> and miraculously, that didn't happen. I just kept discovering nuances and how themes were fitting and how little perfect moments of performance were just like transcendent like gestures and lines I was it was amazing to experience those movies again through the eyes of a kid yeah that that is amazing um I I don't yet have kids but I've thought about you know what what that looks like yeah yeah like oh yeah it'll give me a great excuse to watch some of these exactly that's that's probably ad nauseum but (laughs) yeah right yeah it's so much fun to like fill their heads full of that stuff you know yeah um 
decent point to segue to horror films because I know we're going to talk about yeah. that. Is so my youngest son, who's seven, uh, out of nowhere, is just obsessed with horror movies. He loves them. Um, I can remember him watching when he was really little, like what was it, Goosebumps? Like uh, Goosebumps was on Netflix, okay. not the movie, the series. Mm-hmm. And he kind of was like that. That he was like, okay, this is cool. He was obsessed with him, watched every episode, and then I was like, I, I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand. I can't sit through like the simulacrum of things. You know what I mean? I need to like. I go look. Let me show you something, right? And I showed him the original Fright Night, which you know I have to cover his eyes a little bit because he was probably four at okay, the time. Yeah. <laughs> But I feel like when you're intimate with film, like as long as you talk through the thing you're seeing with your kid, you can expose them to all kinds of wonderful things that they're not considered old enough for. Mm-hmm. You know, you can watch Jaws. You just cover their eyes at s- select moments. If you know the movie, there's only a handful of moments, you know, that you're dealing with. Sure. Halloween, for instance, you know, that's actually a really tame movie. There's only about like five times you have to put your hand in front of a kid's eyes so I showed him the original Fright Night and he just loved it and we went to the Gateway Film Center one time and our friend was still working there and um, Franco spotted the Fright Night poster and he like had a conniption fit you know he was like (laughs) Fright Night Fright Night and all the people there were like what is this kid kind of a freak is this kid you know but ever since then um, he's just become this little horror aficionado and he gets it, you know, he gets how it's done. He watches a lot of the behind the scenes things. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I was, we were, you know, thinking about all these horror movies like we're going to watch this season. Yeah. And, uh, so I wrote a little piece for the WCBE's newsletter that's coming out and in, in no particular order, uh, you know, we, I came up with a list. So... You want to hear them? Sure. Some yeah. of them. And real quick before you jump into the list, yeah. um, it's just reminding me. You know, so um, my you know my parents were not one for uh, censorship or waiting till I was of a certain age to yeah great. <laughs> to watch things either. So uh, yeah, it just the whole Friday night thing reminded me of um, you know when I was a kid, Tales from the Crypt was was extremely popular, uh-huh. and uh, seeing that as a kid. Um, it was one of those things where it terrified me at the time. And then as I got older, I realized, oh, you know, Cryptkeeper is just a guy that loves puns and yeah. spinning like a creepy tale. And right. <laughs> it's he really not all that scary. <laughs> yeah. 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 And um, so, it, yeah, it started my appreciation for Yeah. When I was well. a kid, I saw the original The Fly, the original one in the 50s, which, you know, was super tame compared to the David Cronenberg version where the guy just kind of dissolves <laughs> and turns into, you know, this horrifying thing. Mm-hmm. In that version, he just, like, switches heads and hands, well, like, you know, limbs with the fly. That's it. And so, like, part of him is still normal. And uh, I remember very distinctly the the big reveal when his wife pulls the pillowcase off of his head and he's just got a giant fly head. <laughs> and, I mean, I, you know, it was so... It's both delightful and terrifying, and I had nightmares for weeks. Oh, but yeah. I love that, and I love that feeling. And, you know, I think hadn't my youngest uh, developed this taste for horror movies, I probably would have, you know, not gotten into them again. 
Um, but I really am just having so much fun watching all of them again. Um, the Thing is one of my favorite. John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, that is so practical effects. I love mm -hmm. practical effects. And I know that, you know, younger, more contemporary audiences look at that stuff and they, they go, oh, that looks fake. But I would rather it look fake and be present in the world. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, some, like, I think it's interesting when people go, oh, the, what crappy effects. Like, you know, could you do it? Could, right. I, I know they're <laughs> crappy, but can, could you have this giant mechanical shark moving through the ocean for real? No, you couldn't. I mean, it takes thousands of people to pull this stuff off. Uh, I love the feeling of a tactile presence in the room with, uh, with actors. Oh, yeah. And so the thing is just one of my favorite things where the, the, the guy's head sprouts legs and s starts crawling around the floor. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah, there's a certain appreciation. I feel like you have, you have to be pretty cynical or whatever to be like to kind of dismiss so many great movies with practical effects. And, yeah, yeah. Or even not, I, I don't know, like I just, um, even movies that, like say Pumpkinhead or something like that, mm -hmm. or the original Alien, just, uh, these are just ones that are coming to Right, mind, right, right, but, right. You know, like <laughs> great CGI is kind of great CGI is great CGI, like to a point, you know, certainly it can yeah, be it looks, better it, or worse, but it, like. It can look a little cartoonish, you know? Yeah, or like it's going to be, uh, I guess uh, maybe not as unique or there's less room for like, I don't know, rough edges or like... Right. So one of the best examples of why I think practical effects are so much better is... Um, so American Werewolf in London, which is one of my favorite uh, horror films, and it's equally as funny as it is horrifying. But the transformation scene in that movie... Are you, are you familiar with that one? I haven't seen it, actually. You gotta see this. It's great. You will have a great time. It's a... Uh, a really fun movie um, but the transformation scene is excruciating he's like you start to really kind of, like he's sitting in this room and he's been bitten or scratched or whatever you know so you know it's coming and he just starts getting like hot and squirming you know and he's opening the window and this goes on for the he's listening to the radio then he like can't stand it he like tears his shirt off and then he's just standing there, and all of a sudden he starts screaming, and then the transformation begins. And there are all these great effects, like his hand extending, like, you know, his fingers growing, and then his, like, snout starts to push through his face. And it just goes on and on, and it's like, oh, my God. I, don't, I would never want this to happen to me. This is terrible. Mm -hmm. It looks awful. Like, you really get a sense of, like, oh, my God, what would it be like if my human body started taking the shape of a dog. Like, your spine changes. There's a great scene where his, like, back gets slammed down and you just see the vertebrae go, like, you know, and how he grows these paws and everything. And um, fast forward 20 years later, and they make American Werewolf in Paris. Now the transformations are CGI. And I think they, think, they thought audiences want to see faster transformations, you know? And so the werewolves are like, they ch like, they're running and then their clothes are gone and then they're werewolves. And it, it's such a soulless, lazy idea. 
and it, it just robs it of all the magic, all the tragedy, all the physicality that puts you in the room with him, you know? And so that's the best example I can give of, like, where CGI just fails to capture the tactile nature of the body. Yeah, you know? yeah. Well, I, I, I'll definitely have to watch that and mm. keep that in mind, you know? You will yeah. love it. It's good. Yeah. So it, so you had a list? Yeah, right, so of- we already talked about a couple of them. American Werewolf mm. in London is on that. Uh, Fright Night is on that. Um, my kid talked me into uh, watching the remake of Fright Night, the 2011 remake, which I had turned my nose up at for years mm-hmm. out of loyalty to the original. Sure, sure. But I broke down and I watched it with him. Turns out it's a pretty great remake. It's a lot of fun and uh, uh, great performances and some nice, smart, little contemporary updates to it. Mm-hmm. So that was on there. Um, it Follows is a really smart movie. Oh, yeah. I, uh, have you seen that one? I have seen that one, yeah. Yeah, and, you know, in the 80s, there's that whole trope, like, any teenager that has sex in this movie <laughs> is going to be a victim, right? Right, right. And it just takes that whole idea and, and makes it the central premise of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, the Shining, Dr. Sleep is coming out, uh, Stephen King's sequel to The Shining. Um, I would highly recommend just burrowing down on your couch and watching the original The Shining which is uh, directed by Stanley Kubrick and is notoriously Stephen King's least favorite of the adaptations of his work which is stupid because it's it's, it's so (laughs) brilliant I just think he just can't stand the changes you know Mm -hmm. but to me all of those changes were spot on yeah Uh, what else is on I think Gateway does a screening of that every year right yeah yeah for sure The Shining uh, and Jaws Jaws was not on my list. Um, what else do we have on there? The Shining, The Fly. We talked about that. So mm-hmm. the the Cronenberg movie. Oh, and then and I'll leave you with this. And the uh, one other Cronenberg movie. It's called The Brood, and it's when he was still making films in Canada, and he was going through this really horrifying divorce. And the movie is about this um, uh, new this psychologist comes up with this uh, way to treat trauma and it's called plasmatics or something and what it is is dealing with your trauma in such a way that it 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 manifests physically on your body so like you'll see people just a wound will open up on them as they're relating to you their abuse as a child or something like that Mm -hmm. and so this woman who's gone through so much trauma she starts like giving birth to a brood of these little terrifying murderous imps and they're the makeup is great they look awful and they just go around killing people but it's all wrapped in this very smart Cronenbergian view of uh, of pain and the relationship to emotional pain and, and, and the human body and it's a great weird movie you'll never see anything like it yeah it sounds like uh, a super unique concept oh man it is yeah. it's it's great somebody i mean should remake it if only to introduce audiences to it because you'll probably never see it anywhere you know yeah but yeah i'll leave you with that one the brood yeah yeah well i think we're running a bit short of time here cool um but johnny thanks again for coming on the podcast and thank you us jeff movie recommendations and whatnot um and thanks for doing the library program 
Um, so, so yes, be sure to check out Cinema Classics on WCBE. Um, anything else you'd like to plug or anything like no, that? No, that's it. I mean, yeah, check us out. We, um, we're thinking about, uh, we used to do a, a, a film series at the Gateway Film Center, and uh, that is in the works to return. So, you awesome. know, you can listen to us uh, online at wcbe.org, and then at some point you'll be able to see movies with us at the film center again. Awesome. Cool. I look forward to it. Cool. All right. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Laser, and have a great evening. Mm-hmm.